We're in Ephesians chapter 3 and really just finishing up an introduction to a prayer that Paul almost started to pray at the beginning of chapter 3, and then he sort of interrupted himself in order to just overflow in his appreciation and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember last time we talked about how privileged Paul felt it was to be a servant, a table servant of the Lord, that he, of all the people he knew, was, would be the last that he would consider, consider worthy of this honor to declare the good news that Jews and Gentiles could both come to Christ, come to the Lord through the blood that was shed for them. And, and it's almost all the more dramatic because of how he sees himself as extremely undeserving, and yet he gets to be a part of something so overwhelming. So he thinks of himself so low, and yet what he gets to do is so high, and in that space is just appreciation, grace, humility, love, perspective. And that's something, you know, kind of end the sermon with, but I, I think that's so important is we need to see this great big gap between who we are and what God is using us to do. Paul, in any case, is absolutely baffled that he has the opportunity to be a part of something so incredible and so big. It it just absolutely absorbs and consumes his life. And I love this first thing that he says here that he gets to do in this privilege of serving the Lord. He says that he has the privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. Or to put it this way, he has the privilege to preach the unpreachable. Really, that's what he's saying. And I already said before that the word preach is a Greek word, euangelizo, which in English, we actually get the word evangelize. Um, Literally, euangelizo just means to share good news. But you have to understand that (laughs) that's very generic. Everyone is trying to sell you good news right now. Good news, you're still eligible for tax credits if you get solar or Good news, uh, I'm an Ethiopian prince, and I'm in trouble, but if you help me out, you can get millions of dollars. Or good news, if you're losing your hair, there's a treatment. I give you so much hair, and you make Bigfoot jealous. It's all good news out there. So when we talk about, though, the good news, euangelizo, evangelism, we're talking about the greatest news. That's all good news. <laughs> all right, I'm not trying to diminish any of that. That can be good news for you. And all of the good news we hear is, I'm not trying to delegitimize any of that. But the good news is exactly what what makes Christianity different from all the other religions trying to sell you good news. We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's not in your spam folder. That's, That's not something you're hearing on the news or or on TV or door-to-door salesmen. The unsearchable riches of Christ is what Paul said he had the privilege to bring. And the word unsearchable is a good, good word. In other places, it can be fathomless. It it can be something that is uh, unknowable to no matter how hard you search. It's something that you can't get your head around. It blows your mind. You see, money, if you think about 
uh, if he had said something like the, um, like the uncountable riches of money, well, you can always count money. We have pretty fancy calculators and computers that can do very, very, very large amounts of money. It it, can be done. So clearly, to use the term unsearchable riches means that we're talking not about dollars and cents or, or bars of gold. This is talking about something more real, riches that are more beneficial to your soul, riches you're not even able to comprehend the riches of Christ. Jesus is the infinite, eternal God in the flesh. That is already an unsearchable thought in the sense of how can you confine or contain or however you want to put it, eternal God into a baby. And yet we celebrate that every year at Christmas time. You can't get your head around that. How can you get your head around the fact that God enters into his creation not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. All the kings and and presidents and dictators of the world, they seem to be in it for the power and the money and the influence. And yet here is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He comes humbly in order to serve. How can you wrap your mind fully around that? We know the facts of it. Yes, like we know the facts of Christmas, but when you really start to think about that truth. Jesus is Lord and King, and yet he comes in a manger, born to humble parents, not on an estate, not in a palace. And then that he would suffer to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to forgive us for our sins. How can we possibly think that that is something we can totally fathom and understand. I mean, we can understand the facts. Hung on the cross, and and he bore the the penalty for our sins. He died unjustly. We say that. But when you really think about that, that somehow in this, this spiritual truth and reality that as Jesus was there on a cross for, for hours, mere hours, somehow he was also suffering for the sins of the world, Those are truths that and riches that Paul says are unsearchable. The fact that we can be right with God through faith in what Jesus did, that he rose from the dead to unite us with himself and with God the Father and sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. I can tell you the facts of that. I can say it just like I said it, and it's true. But to really search that out, is your mind really able to wrap around that? God in us, that we can be right with him. These are unsearchable riches, far greater than all of the treasures this world has to offer. How can you put a value on any of them? We use the word, Paul uses the word riches just to make a, a contrast to the riches of the world. How can you put a value on the forgiveness of sins? I remember those commercials. I don't know, I forgot if it was Visa or MasterCard, and it lists these different items and say the amount $10 for a teddy bear and you know, $20 for you know, her favorite food, but the smile on your little girl's face, priceless, something like that. Well, even then, 
I mean, it's so funny. They're trying to make something sentimental about a credit card. You know, it, it, that, that's almost kind of a, a disgusting thought when you think about that. Because here we have truly a, a free offer, forgiveness of sins. How could you put a price tag on that? What price tag can you put on eternal life? What would you give for the assurance that everything is going to work out for good for you? Even insurance is not assurance that things are going to turn out a certain way. In fact, it's the assumption that at some point something may not. So you need to be covered. What about, what would you pay? What premium would you give for the assurance that everything is going to work out for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? These are the riches that are found in Christ, and they are beyond truly understanding, but you can begin to understand. I mean, for, for Paul to preach the unpreachable didn't mean that he was going to stop preaching because it's unpreachable. It meant that he needed to preach more. The fact that it's unsearchable doesn't mean that you don't search. It means that the more you understand, the more you gain, the more you dig, the more you bring up that is of value and of worth. And Paul thought it was such a humbling privilege to share these unsearchable riches to the world, even, as we said before, to the Gentiles who are kind of basically enemies to the Jewish people. This is such good news, Paul could not even keep himself from withholding it from his enemies. This is so good. I have to tell you, even though you know, you're far from God, I have to tell you this. What, what, a, what kind of good news would you be willing to tell even your enemies? That's how great a news this is. Alexander McLaren says, In Christ, as a great storehouse, lie all the riches of spiritual wisdom, the massive ingots of solid gold, which when coined into creeds and doctrines are the wealth of the church all which we can know concerning God and man, concerning sin and righteousness and duty, concerning another life is in him who is the home and deep mine where truth is stored. The central fact of the universe and the perfect encyclopedia of all moral and spiritual truth is in Christ, the incarnate word, the lamb slain, the ascended king. Paul had unsearchable riches to preach. He expands on that by saying that he was given this privilege to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul wasn't just declaring good news. He was sharing with them the truths of all time and existence. He uses the word enlighten along with the word preach to describe, to further explain his mission. The word literally means to shine a light on, this word enlighten. But again, we're speaking spiritually. Paul took the time, in other words, to explain, to elaborate, to exposit the word of God in order to shed light on how literally everything is wrapped up into Christ as the very purpose for which everything exists. The word for plan refers to something administered. In other words, a plan that is executed, 
thoughtfully and according to definite guidelines. The mystery of Jesus saving sinners by his sacrifice on the cross was in a way hidden, and yet it was woven into the fabric of creation, even from the very beginning of time. Jesus coming into the world to save the world, you could say, was, was baked in from the very inception. What that means is that even before Genesis 1-1, God had the intention to, dem to demonstrate his glory through the things he created and the events that would unfold within his creation. It's a, it's a very glorious thought. I, I, you can usually tell the shows and the books where the writers knew what the ending was going to be from the beginning. Because all the things that happen, all the relationships and, and, and all the dialogue, they're, they're driving towards this conclusion. You can tell because when you rewatch the series or you reread the book, you see all the threads more clearly. Oh, I get it now. He was foreshadowing this. She was seeding the idea of the conclusion even from the opening pages. You see that the end was hinted at from the very beginning. That's good storytelling. That, that, that's that's, that's uh, something that, that, that makes for a satisfying conclusion when you know that the author knows the end from the beginning. On the flip side, uh, you can usually tell those stories where the, the author was making things up on the way. Had no idea how to finish the story. And you get a big mess of an ending or conclusion to the book. It started so well, but it ended so horribly. It's because they, they didn't know how this was going to end when they were writing it. And they fumbled it. But that's not how God works. He didn't make things up as he went along or, or get surprised by what was happening. He wrote the whole story. And the idea of a mystery that was hidden for ages is not to say that no one ever could have an idea, rather that it was woven into it so that when you looked back, it makes sense. You look at the Old Testament and you see treasures in it. Actually, it just occurred to me because Anna was bringing, going through Matthew and there's a parable about how the kingdom of God is like a, a, a scribe um, who's the master of a house and he brings out treasures both new and old. That's it. That's the parable. Like, what does that mean? Well, it's the idea. A scribe is a, a student of the law. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a scribe could now realize the treasures that were hidden in the Old Testament because of Jesus Christ. Oh, now I get it. Now I see the point of what the prophets were driving towards. It wasn't just all doom and gloom. Now I understand why David did what he did. Abraham did what he did. Why Moses did what he did. All of it suddenly becomes clear because we know the ending. How do we apply this idea that we have this privilege to preach the unpreachable? Well, this isn't just about preaching or about pastors or about what churches should emphasize. I think the real core of application here should be that we all need to have a desire to think deeply, to feel strongly, to want to love intensely, to be able to give fully, none of which can happen without immersing ourselves in the unsearchable riches of the knowledge of Christ. I mean, this isn't about what Pastor Yuri should do. It's 
isn't about what our church should do. We do. We, we go through the word of God every Sunday. But this is, do you think that Christ, in Christ, are these unsearchable riches that the more you understand and, and the more that you, you, you set your mind to it, you see the beauty and the glory. You see that there is treasure here. Or is your Christian life and duty just a routine? What about this sounds like a routine to you? This is like Paul is, is, is in front of a field which just has buried treasure in it in every square foot. And he's almost just, you know, I don't even know where to start. Anywhere I dig will be gold. That's what it is. Pursue Christ. Think upon Christ. Love Christ. Secondly, Paul is privileged that he has this ability to astonish angels. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul was was made a minister, remember, a, a table servant. In order for this purpose to come to pass, the wisdom of God would be demonstrated to these rulers and authorities. We'll talk about that in a second. Through the church. Okay, so we're still in the context of Paul having his mind blown about the fact that he gets to serve the Lord. And he says this, there's this, one of the purposes of this is to astonish the angels. Why do I say it like that? Well, these rulers and authorities, these two words here, um, they can refer to world leaders and influential people and so on, but they can also refer to angelic beings, both the holy ones and the fallen ones, and demons, in other words. So this is definitely talking about the realm of angels, since Paul's mentioning the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're talking about the, the, the spiritual angelic realm. And we talked a little bit about this in chapter uh, 1, verse 21 of Ephesians, and it'll come up again in chapter 6 when we talk about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. But uh, just to give kind of a little bit of a summary so we can understand the point that Paul's driving to here, um, the Bible communicates that there is a spiritual component to this reality. That on the one hand, there are the things that we can and touch and, and feel and, and, and those things bound by the laws of physics and so on, but that there's also things of spiritual reality that are not constrained to just um, things we can touch, feel, or examine. Um, very easy to prove these things, but just you know, for now, understand that the Bible is definitely communicating that there's more to our existence than just this, all right, and, and this. Now, what exactly a heavenly place is doesn't then correlate to, let's say, a literal domain or location. Like, I know it's popular to imagine hell as being under the earth, but really in the Bible, the association with probably hell and, and under the earth has more to do with the fact that we bury dead people. And the idea of Sheol in the Old Testament, can sometimes correlate to a judgment place, but it can also correlate to just dead, where the dead people go, which is under the ground or in their context and into the side of a mountain. But either way, um, it's not necessarily the case that hell is some location under the earth's mantle. Like if you could, you know, 
you know, use uh, some sophisticated um, uh, scans and technology, you could find hell. It's not that. Similarly, uh, what we call heaven now, I know we typically imagine as, as up from here, right? In the clouds or in space or something. Um, but that isn't where heaven is per se. And we probably associate that again because when Jesus ascended, he went up, right? So we kind of associate heaven with up, hell with down. But those kinds of locational terminology, it's, it's, uh, it's not like physically, geographically accurate. Uh, heaven is wherever God is and wherever Christ is right now. And that's probably more of a spiritual reality. Although, again, not to get into the weeds, Jesus does have a physical body. So where is that physical body located? Well, Bible doesn't, doesn't say. So in any case... When we talk about heavenly places or the dwelling places of angels or demons or anything like that, um, it, it's, I'm just trying to emphasize, it's a spiritual existence um, that we don't have a lot of details about. It doesn't behoove anyone to like, try and find it or anything like that. It's a spiritual truth and reality. Now, the Bible definitely communicates, though, that demonic activity occurs among us as well as angelic activity, but... It's not the way any movie or TV show or book typically portrays it. In fact, um, it's somewhat subtly talked about in the Bible. Actually, Pastor Chris did a really good um, message on that a few Wednesdays ago. Uh, if you want to go back to, to that, you can ask him which lesson it was. But going back to the idea of the authorities and rulers here, uh, we have two classes of, of angels. You have angels that did not fall and angels that did fall. Sometimes we call them fallen angels, sometimes they're called demons, sometimes they're called unclean spirits. Those are all somewhat used interchangeably. Now, those demons, what happened? Why did they fall? Well, they fell for the same sinful rebellion and pride that Satan, the premier, the foremost angel, fell into. They saw that they were made by God, but they were not God, and that wasn't enough. And their envy and jealousy, they tried to defy God, which God punished them for by preparing this place of judgment for them. In the meantime, they have been allowed to influence events and people on earth, and, and even though they are under God's sovereign purpose and plan, they are still trying to undermine God and his people. God is using that because he's sovereign, but from their perspective, they're going around trying to undermine the purpose of God. So, with all that said, God is trying to show these angels and demons something. The manifold wisdom of God. Meaning, all that we just said before, the gospel as preached by undeserving men like Paul. Why is the gospel so fascinating to angels and demons? What do they have to, what do they stand to see in witnessing this? Why couldn't, why couldn't God just tell them something? Why does he need the church to demonstrate something? Like, I can't, he's God. Why doesn't he just tell them? Well, the gospel is something <laughs> that God wants to show, not just the angels and demons, but the whole of creation in order to turn hearts to worship. Now, in the case of fallen demons, they can't worship. 
But 1 Peter 1.12 says that the angels long to look into this salvation that they're seeing. Why is it fascinating to angels and demons that sinners can be forgiven? Well, it's exactly because that's not an opportunity that's given to them. God punished the fallen angels with no opportunity of forgiveness. Satan doesn't have a chance to repent, and he doesn't want to repent, and he can't repent. In other words, there's, there's no place in the Bible where you get indication where those holy angels could ever fall again. You get no indication in the Bible that those fallen angels can be restored again. There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that Satan or the demons can, can, can make up for what has happened. In other words, in, in the angelic realm, God just made an absolute stark, clear judgment. If you sin, judgment, hell, punishment forever. If you're preserved by God, and I believe that those holy angels were preserved by God, then heaven, then, then worship, then eternity. So of course it's fascinating that the angels would see the church and say, what's going on here? This is different. With humans, God is patient. He saves he forgives. That fascinates angels and frustrates demons. And that's what's amazing about God is that he is using the church to put on this display. That the church is the place where people who have been forgiven or people hear the gospel and are forgiven of their sins through faith in Christ. We get to demonstrate the goodness and greatness of God to this angelic audience. When we get together and sing, when we hear the Bible, when we, we try to apply it, when we love each other, forgive each other, grow together, we learn about the riches of Christ with one another. We're broadcasting a message, not just to this earthly plane of existence, which is good, the world needs to hear it, but even the spiritual realm, we declare God is wise. He is good and just. He is kind and patient. He's creator and judge, savior and friend. That's something that the angels and demons marvel at. It, 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 it confounds them as well as, as magnificent uh, of creatures and created beings as they are. Because all they know is judgment, God's holiness, his righteousness. But we know his forgiveness, his mercy, his patience. The things we do as a church should display the wisdom of God. And it's not a stretch to say that the church should have a similar purpose in the world. We shouldn't be like everyone else. We're here to communicate things about God in what we say and do. That means we, we can't just be another club, another organization, another nonprofit, another religion. If we are, then we've lost our purpose in our way. We need to think of the church as a place where divine wisdom is being manifested. It means we need a church, think about church a little bit differently than all the other organizations you've ever been a part of or, or clubs or societies. That when we think of church, this is the only place where divine wisdom is being manifested that astonishes the angels so we should make the most of that. We shouldn't be carrying on 
in a way that is just like the world and just like what we see on TV, you know, the pity drama or the, the, the bottled up unforgiveness and bitterness. This should be a place that is just so different than that. Let us amaze angels with how we conduct ourselves this morning. Lastly, Paul gives us the assurance that we can be bold and endure. This, Paul says in verse 11, was according to the eternal promise or purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Verse 11 reminds us, as we said earlier, that this has always been the plan. This has been the eternal purpose all along. God's plan for creation was set from the beginning. And everything that we see in not only the Old Testament, but even in world history, has been consistently pointing out our sinful and rebellious hearts and humanity's need for a perfect Savior. That that we need uh, someone that can save us from ourselves. And that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in a way, by this, in verse 11, what he is saying is that we know something about everything in this creation. This is a quote that I mentioned Tuesday at the the Thanksgiving uh, service, but I, I just, I really like it. The idea is if you know the eternal purpose for all things and all events and every atom and, and molecule and every galaxy and, and every you know, cell and human being, you, you know something about it. If you know the purpose for all things, you know something about everything. And Piper says it this way. You don't know everything. There are billions of things you don't know. But you are never at a loss to know something important about everything. Because you know that everything exists for the glory of God. You know something about everything. And this is one of the most important things you can know about anything. You know that it's all for the glory of God. This is the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That everything has been driving towards him. That we are celebrating Christmas because it's saying something not just about what happened in, in, in some pasture lands in Israel 2,000 years ago, but that he divided time and history. There's a reason that it's the year 2022. It's because of Jesus. That affects everyone. Verse 12 is a parallel then to verse 7 through 8. Paul felt so unworthy to be a servant of God, but knowing now through Jesus the grace of God, Paul has no problem declaring that we can all have boldness and confident access to Jesus. Why? Because if Paul can be shown grace, a persecutor of the church, a a, a murderer in heart, a blasphemer against God, a self-righteous bigot because he would have hated the Gentiles, If God can use and save someone like him, if God can give grace to him, then everyone should feel confident that God can can save anybody. 
that we come not through our works, because if we did, Paul had no works to give. But if, if it's by faith and not any works that we do, we can come confidently. Because then what we're saying is, the only thing I have to bring to you, God, is my sin. The only thing that I contribute, as one theologian said, to my salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And if God can save by our faith, then that's exactly the message that we're, we're not impressive to God. We, we can't earn his favor. And so he's just accepting faith, and that's all I got to give, actually, so I can come boldly. Because he's not expecting works. He's not expecting for us to be the best and the brightest and, and the most famous and the, and the strongest. He's not expecting any of that because he's accepting faith, not works. So that's good news. Then you, you run to it. It's like a, you know, if I can make a Black Friday analogy, but it wasn't actually as crazy as it's been. But if you know, like, everything's free, and, and anyone can come, like, you'd be super enthusiastic. You'd, you'd run. So if God is saying, no, you don't need any works to come to me, just faith, why wouldn't you run? Why wouldn't you have the most confidence and the most boldness? And because of that, Paul asked the Ephesians to not be discouraged that he was in prison, suffering, Really, not for his faith, he says, although in other places you'll say, you know, I'm, I'm here because of my faith. I'm here because of the gospel of Jesus and trusting in it. But here he's saying that I'm suffering, and he means his imprisonment. He's under house arrest, as we talked about before. I'm suffering for you. I'm in prison because of you. But that's something you should be happy about. You should glory in. Why? Because if he had not preached the gospel to them, he would not be in prison, but they would also be in their unbelief and sin. But because he had preached to them and as a result was in prison, the Ephesians heard the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus. They uh, started a church and became this glorious, wonderful place of worship where Jews and Gentiles had come together and worship one God. So he says, glory then that I suffered for you. I don't resent it, so you don't resent it either. The chains are proof of what he did for the Ephesians. Something he did without hesitation to serve the Lord and also to see people come together as the people of God. I think this is something, again, that we need to grasp. Before you make one more life choice or decision, whether it's who you're going to marry, where you want to live, what school to go to, or even what, what socks to wear. There's two things to realize every day. The dramatic sense of your unworthiness and sinfulness and smallness compared to the vastness of the universe and the holiness of the creator of all things, on the one hand, and the unbelievable reality that God showed you grace and mercy through the death and resurrection of his son, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
if you see both of these things, I'm totally unworthy. I'm nobody. I mean, I'm just not even a speck in, the, in, in the, the vastness of the universe. And certainly I'm not someone deserving of God's favor in any way. I'm a sinner. Truly embrace that. Make that low. And then make God and his grace and his mercy and his love high. And then you'll start to truly understand how to go through life. How am I going to serve everyone if I think I'm better than you? It would only be in some condescending, patronizing way. No, you must think of yourself less and least of all. How are you going to endure difficulties and trials if the gospel is not the most important message and good news for which you're to suffer anything for? If it's only just kind of good news, if it's just the, you know, again, I get a lot of spam mail, but if it's just one of these spam messages that you won um, a new... What is it now? A Ryobi drill or, or something from Home Depot. I mean, is that good news that you're willing to die for? Like, yeah, you could, you could get this drill, but there's a 50-50 chance that uh, when you show up to Home Depot, we're going to kill you. Right? I'm not going to take that risk. I mean, that's sort of good news that you won, but it's not something I'd worth, be worth dying for. See, the gospel needs to be the greatest news, and then you'll be willing to suffer and endure anything for it. If you hold these two truths, you'll be able to get, there's no problem that you cannot deal with, no trial of life that you cannot endure, no person that you cannot love. Life becomes a privilege when you cling to those truths, you'll take nothing for granted and you'll become incredibly durable and thankful and joyful. That's what Paul did. I can't believe he would save me. I can't believe he'd make me a table servant of God. I, I'm nobody. I'm the least of all. The saints. And yet I have these unsearchable riches of Christ. Put that together, you get Paul. So maybe it's one, maybe it's the other that you need to grasp more firmly this morning. But I, too, want you to not lose heart. I, too, want you to be encouraged. And so we see, hopefully, in these texts that we have this privilege to preach the unpreachable. We have this ability to astonish the angels. We, lastly, have a bold confidence to come to Christ to hold these two things in our hands, both of them. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have been so good and kind to our church that I think there are many who are, are trying at least to grasp these ungraspable things. Who wants to hear they're sinners and lost and least of all? But Lord, if that gives us the least bit of perspective and humility and appreciation for, for your your grace and your gospel good news. Maybe we need to face that mirror. On the other hand, Lord, that you would be so good and kind to lift us up, to raise us to the place where you are, 
the promise to us that we are inheritors of the same riches and, and power and authority as Christ himself, truly undeserving. Can't get through anything if we really believe that. So I pray, Lord, that we would really believe that. And I pray that the time we have together on Sundays and throughout the week with the other believers, that that would always be reminding us and encouraging us in these things. And that we would really see an opportunity to demonstrate to the angels and to the world these amazing truths. Help us to be the church. Thank you, Lord, for each one that has come. And I pray that you'd bless all who have heard your word and may go forth and accomplish uh, its purpose in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.